This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we mentioned, busy day in Hamilton, especially yesterday uh, with uh, the Around the Bay race, which was an overwhelming success. Congratulations to everybody involved in that, both the participants and uh, those that volunteered and organized. But uh, there was also a, a march of a different kind. Uh, and that was on Lock Street yesterday. We had anticipated this was going to happen. We knew that two groups with contrary opinions uh, were going to be marching down Young Street or Lock Street, rather. And uh, Hamilton Police were aware of this. And uh, well, there was a presence there. Uh, I guess that's the overview of what happened. But to get it to specific about exactly how things were controlled, we were pleased to welcome back to the program Deputy Chief of Police Dan Kinsella from Hamilton Police Services. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Yeah, my pleasure, Bill. Nice to talk to you again. Things went reasonably well, pretty well. Uh, you were very pleased. How do, how, how do you assess what happened yesterday? Well, um, things went well, and uh, we were prepared. We um, had to uh, obviously deploy according to uh, the situation that we were presented with, so uh, we did that. We deployed in a gradual and, and uh, upgraded manner as required, so the outcome was good, particularly in the aspect of there was no injuries yesterday, and that was our our number one main concern. So no injuries to uh, anybody involved and kept the peace in the community. Do you have an estimate as to how many offers were, uh, were on the scene there yesterday? Well, it varied depending on, on what was happening. So um, we were in and out depending what we needed. We had the action team obviously deployed on bicycles. We had uh, patrol units assisting. We had POU units from Waterloo uh, coupled and teamed up with our own POU units. And then, of course, we had our mounted patrol unit, not only from Hamilton, but also from the Toronto Police. Is that usual to bring in uh, officers from other uh, police services in situations like this? Absolutely. We have uh, shared agreements with a number of our, our policing neighbours in the Golden Horseshoe, and, and uh, you know, we're very grateful that they were able to come in and assist us yesterday. As you know, we were taxed a little bit with resources because we had the Around the Bay, so sure. we had a contingent of police there. And, uh, it, you know, we uh, also help other agencies. They help us. Uh, it's the way that we're uh, able to get the job done. When you're presented with a situation like this, and I know that when you were with us last week before this event happened, Dan, uh, you, you couldn't be too specific about exactly what the plan was for police. But, but is there a template that you follow? Is there a game plan? Because uh, those that were there and those that I talked to yesterday uh, that were witnessing what was going on on Lock Street said that you, there seemed to be a coordinated effort by police. You weren't just reacting. You, you were being proactive. They, they seemed to know where they were going and when they had to get there. Right. And, and I won't go into too many details because we could be faced with the same situation again in the sure, for, in sure. The, um, future. But what I can tell you is that the groups that we were dealing with, um, they're strategic the way that they deploy. Uh, we are also strategic, the way that we deploy. And uh, we uh, not only reacted, but we had planned for and were prepared. And uh, that unfolded uh, yesterday afternoon. Well, one of the common comments that I heard from those that were there was that uh, that police controlled the situation. And in other words, you, you, you kept them on Lock Street and as opposed to being able to spread out all over the place, I guess, because you had officers at just about every intersection to make sure that they didn't head down any side streets. Yeah, and, and fundamentally what we want to ensure is community safety. And, and we spoke on Friday and you asked me the question, you know, what's the message to people? The message is to go out and enjoy your day. Go shopping, do your antiques, go for breakfast, bring your children out, um, do what you want to do. And, and that's what we provided and that was the goal. And uh, it was from that regard a success. So obviously you, you did have a plan. I understand that you don't want to be too specific about this, but it seemed to roll out. Uh, I was obviously doing the Bay Race, the broadcast of our Bay Race, so I didn't get to finish that until well afternoon. 
But I did go down Aberdeen, and I saw that you had the, the police command center uh, set up there. So obviously this was a, uh, a plan that was put in place and, and, and uh, very, very coordinated among, well, as it turned out, I guess a couple of different police services besides Hamilton. Yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, we need to have that kind of coordination and communication between the officers. And uh, there's a certain amount of monitoring that goes on so we can uh, see what's going on with the other groups that we're dealing with. And uh, again, at the end of the day, we have to provide public safety, and, um, and and we looked after that and made sure that we were able to deploy the appropriate resources when required. The situation was fluid. It was constantly changing, and uh, we reacted and changed to that with the intention of allowing peaceful, lawful protest. And then the flip side is to ensure public safety. Hey, listen, a number of people that contacted me after you and I talked on Friday, Dan, uh, and asked about the legitimacy of actually even doing what they did. Uh, that said, uh, some asking, well, don't you have to have a permit to, to do a march or a parade of that nature? Uh, could, could you maybe clarify exactly what's allowed and what's not allowed? Sure. So to close down the roadway in Hamilton, you need a permit. You have to get that permit through the city, and that has to be done well in advance. Uh, through a committee within uh, City Hall that uh, a number of uh, different branches sit on. And the reason that they do that is so, you know, appropriate barriers can put in place, appropriate notification can be made to the public, appropriate rerouting of HSR and, and other notifications to cab companies, that kind of thing. Um, what we had yesterday uh, was a, a flagrant disregard of that by one of the groups. And, and uh, the problem with it is, is we have to ensure public safety for everyone that's involved. So when you have a group of that size, it was about 150, and uh, we had to interact with them. And when they take over the roadway like that and unlawfully shut down the roadway, uh, we have to react for their own safety because we have vehicles coming and, and, and those kind of things. So there was a temporary closure of Main Street yesterday, um, but it, it certainly was uh, an unlawful act by the group at that time. And, uh, you know, we, that's one of the fluidity pieces of the, of the operational plan that we have to react to. All right. When something like that happens and, and they, there is a flagrant disregard for the law or the bylaws, it would be... Uh, was there a possibility of arrests there, and was there a decision made not to? Well, there certainly was, but we have to look at the volume of people that we're dealing with and what's in the best interest of everyone participating. We measure that against potential risk outcomes, such as injury to people who are participating, um, the impact that it might have on traffic, somebody driving around along the road, uh, runs over one of the demonstrators, those kind of things. So based on the overall uh, impact and assessment, um, decisions were made. Uh, in the interest of public safety, and, and, you know, primarily for the group that was blocking the road. Um, and, and we apply the law evenly to everybody and the safety aspects, and safety will uh, over um, uh, overarch anything that we're doing, and that's the application that we chose to go with yesterday. So you, the concern, I guess, would have been that, that maybe had there been a confrontation with police and the people that were breaking that law, that uh, that outcome actually could have been a lot worse if there was a confrontation. Yes, absolutely it could have been, and, and again... Um, we're there to keep the peace and make sure that people have that opportunity that they're constitutionally guaranteed uh, to demonstrate. And uh, we did our uh, did an excellent job, I believe, in, in ensuring that that happened while we maintain public safety. And, and the outcome speaks for itself with no injuries. There were two groups there, uh, as, as we've talked about. Uh, was there any uh, interaction between police, between officers, and, and either one of those groups, I mean, v- verbally? Uh, absolutely. There was, uh, there was interaction. Um, you know, we set the groundwork for people, we give them uh, some instructions, we tell them what is permissible and not permissible, and then we have to measure out, you know, what the action is from there. Uh, but there was more than two groups there yesterday, Bill, and there's a number of people that have varying affiliations to one side or the other, and uh, they sometimes join in, whether it's uh, planned or unplanned, 
And that's why we saw the, the numbers swell to the numbers they did. Uh, for the group that was marching on Main Street. Yeah, I, I guess maybe the the better way to say that is two different ideologies, but a number of different people. But I, I again, talking to some of the folks that were on the street, and they suggested there seemed to be an awful lot of confusion where uh, some of the members of those groups couldn't identify who's what, who's on what side, but that's, I guess, a problem they have to work out. Uh, there was another location, a place called The Tower in downtown Hamilton uh, that was mentioned in a couple of the social media posts. And my understanding, Dan, is that you had officers deployed to that area? Well, we know that uh, there is activity uh, in and around the tower, so we were paying attention to that. We were monitoring and we were present and uh, actually intervened and interacted uh, on a couple of occasions yesterday, again, to make sure that we uh, kept the peace in that area as well. And that's all part of the constant monitoring that goes on uh, by the police service uh, to make sure that we know, you know, where are the uh, hotspots, if you will, or the areas of interest and concern, and we're constantly monitoring and paying attention to those areas. It, was there a concern? I mean, it did break up after a while, but th- was there a concern about them reorganizing someplace else? I mean, I'm just going back to the incident a few weeks ago where there was, of course, the initial uh, problem at Durand Park, and then all of a sudden it gravitated over to Lock Street. Did you follow them? Did you track where they were going, or did you just feel they're gone so that that's the end of it? Well, we uh, we maintained a presence in the area well after the, uh, the demonstrators and protesters had left. We made sure that... Um, before we left the area, because what we didn't want to have happen is for them to, to come back after we left. So we stayed well beyond, monitored the area, assured ourselves that the uh, the concerns were um, no longer imminent, and uh, that's when we began to um, uh, dismantle our our, uh, our deployed officers there and let them get on with the day. Protests are not new to us. They've been going on for quite some time for a number of different causes, and uh, whether we agree or disagree with them, but they seem to be happening with more frequency right now. Uh, maybe the worst-case scenario of how it was handled and some of the results was the G20 a few years ago in Toronto. Uh, have we learned from that? Is Does it set a new standard and, and given you some information as to exactly how you approach situations like this? Absolutely, and I was present uh, as a POU commander at the time at the G20, so I was actually on ground. So it was a good learning experience for me, and certainly as a, a police service and working with our counterparts, uh, we've taken away some uh, some lessons from that interaction to try to make sure that uh, we do things differently with an eye to, uh, first and foremost, fundamentally keeping the peace. So, so that's the new normal then, that we have to be prepared for these sorts of events? Well, I think we need to be cognizant of it, and we need to remain vigilant, both as, as a community, as a police service, and, and uh, everyone else that's a stakeholder in this. Uh, but the messaging is, uh, really, what was accomplished yesterday other than disrupting the community and being disrespectful to members of our community? And, uh, you know, uh, shutting down traffic when we were already dealing with traffic issues in, in the around the bay. So um, we do have to be cognizant of it. We do have to uh, be vigilant. But I think there's also a broader message, and we were reaching out to uh, the organizers from both sides, uh, trying to communicate and, and find a better way uh, to better um, let them get their message across without this uh, impact, this negative impact that uh, they are causing to our community. Well, in the past, police have had some success in reaching out to groups and at least having a dialogue, maybe not an agreement necessarily, but at least a dialogue on, on protocols, etc. Is there any hope that you can do that with these groups, or is there just too much of a difference there? And, and, and obviously, I know that some of the slogans that were being shouted yesterday uh, didn't lend uh, any credibility to the fact that there could be a stronger relationship. I guess they don't like you very much, Dan. Well, that's right, and... Uh, you know, um, we we have our, our uh, obligations, uh, you know, to the city, to the community, under the criminal code, under the provincial statutes. Um, I guess to answer your question, there's always hope, Bill. 
but these groups are uh, pretty disparate right now. They're pretty far apart. So uh, we will continue to do what we do in, in order to uh, make sure that the community gets to uh, carry on with their day and stay safe. And it's, uh, it's a fluid situation, and it's dynamic, and we have to, uh, like I say, stay on top of it, and, and we will endeavor to do that. Well, I heard nothing but praise from uh, some of the folks, actually a couple of them that run businesses down there, and some of the ones that were just there to, uh, to frequent those businesses on Sunday, about the way the police handled themselves and they handled the situation. Uh, so clearly it's, uh, it's a, a, a feather in your cap, and obviously kudos to police services uh, and everybody who was down there. I, we should actually, I guess, just to reassure some folks, uh, because we have had a couple of incidents now in the last couple of weeks with uh, events of this type, Dan, uh, that as you told us on Friday, uh, that police services are monitoring things like social media and, and those sorts of places uh, to keep an eye on things so so they're not caught off guard. We, the public, aren't caught off guard on these things. That's right, and we continue to do that, Bill, and we will continue to do that. Um, you know, the, the other side sometimes comes up with other strategies, so we have to uh, we have to stay on top of it. And, and one message to the community, you know, if you see something, say something. And we had great response from the community giving us, you know, various tips, whether it was through Crime Stoppers uh, or telephone calls to the police station. We encourage the community uh, to keep doing that because they're a big part of how we get the job done. And, and I have to tell you, I was extremely proud of the men and women, both sworn and civilian of the Hamilton Police Service yesterday. They did a fantastic job. Our partners from Waterloo in Toronto did a fantastic job. And uh, I'm very appreciative of all the great work they did and the continued support of the community. Well, it was a busy day in Hamilton, obviously, with uh, the Around the Bay and with what was happening on Lock Street and uh, officers all over the place. And uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, no incidents in, in any of those occasions all through the course of the day yesterday. And a job well done by everybody. Uh, thanks, Dan, so much. Uh, and please extend our thanks to your officers uh, for the work that they did. And uh, here's hoping that these things don't happen as frequently as some people. We've seen things go bad in other communities. And, and, and to see it handled the way that was yesterday, I think, is, is really reassuring to everybody in the community. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate it. I'll pass that along. And as always, pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again, Dan. Take That's uh, Deputy Chief of Police Dan Kinsella from Hamilton Police Services. If you were down there yesterday, obviously, uh, I saw some of the comments on social media. Uh, lots of praise for police and the way that they handled that. And uh, they did try a couple of times. Though there's some people that were down there uh, marching did try to get unruly, and uh, not to the point of violence, but uh, confrontational to a certain extent. And uh, police, by all accounts, did uh, just a great job in keeping uh, those elements away from each other and uh, keeping people safe on Lock Street. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, we all got concerns about our education system. Uh, governments, uh, provincial governments, for years, for generations now, spending all kinds of money and throwing money at the education system, trying to improve it. Yet the test scores are still not where they should be. We've got schools that are falling apart. The infrastructure is falling apart. Last week we reported on a story where there was a concern about increased violence in classrooms uh, because of uh, poor resources to uh, deal with certain situations. Well, what's the solution? Well, the Center, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives has a solution. They've come up with a series of recommendations that uh, might just improve the, uh, the standard of education here in the province of Ontario and even the buildings in which it happens. Erica Shaker is uh, with the Center for uh, Policy Alternatives uh, for Education and Outreach, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Erica. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. I'm frustrated, like most Ontario taxpayers, <laughs> uh, because we, we talk an awful lot on programs like this about our health care system and our education system, and the one thing that we have in common 
uh, but the two of them, I think, is that uh, it's it's not how much we spend on them, it's where the money's being spent. And that seems to be uh, the frustration. Yeah, but that's not the question that seems to be addressed by government. Well, I think what, what, we've, what we have done um, is we are looking at um, sort of rethinking the, the questions that need to underpin a funding formula that actually ensures that kids are getting the support they need in schools, that educators and education workers are also being provided with the resources they need to, in, to, to ensure that you know, kids are getting the education that, that works for them, that schools are in good repair, and that they're also being treated like the community anchors they are. Because as I'm, I'm sure you would agree, schools are often the, the fo- a focal point of neighborhoods and in small, small rural communities, they're the focal point of an entire town. So that, that's what we're looking at. That's, that's, the, that's what we feel needs to be the starting point for a funding formula that ensures that the correct amount of money is actually going and that kids are getting the, the education that they need because that funding is there and is sustainable. But Erica, we, we had that red flag waved in front of us before when this, this whole series of school closures was happening in cities right across the mm-hmm. province. And, and they, would, they would please say, don't do this. This is a community hub. This is where we yeah. meet. This is where our kids have after-school programs. And you can't do this to us. Uh, and, and the answer from the Board of Education in every situation was always, that's the policy. Not much we can do about it. So why aren't we addressing the policy then? Well, you're correct, and that's exactly what we're saying needs to be done. Is exactly. We need to yeah. address the policy. That yeah. You, you that get it. Pay. You get it. The government doesn't yeah. seem to get it. Well, I think people, I mean, I think that there is a, a general recognition that we do need a review of the, the current system that is in place, right? And we haven't actually had a fulsome review in 15 years, more than 15 years now, since Rosansky actually took a look at it in 2002 and determined that, in fact, you know, well over a billion, close to $2 billion had been pulled out of the system and recommended that uh, significant money be injected immediately and that more money be injected to immediately address the issue of deferred maintenance. What you, what you would have referred to earlier where buildings are actually in poor repair. So we're saying that now is the absolute time to really take them up on that <laughs> on that recommendation and have a fulsome review. But more to the point, we need to address the underlying issues uh, uh, you know, that, that, that were behind the funding formula in the first place that remain largely unchanged. And in order to do that, we really need to take the dollar away from the center and, and put the child back in the center and say, what does, a ki- what does a child, what does a student need in order to succeed? What do they need to succeed from an educational basis, but also from a social basis, too? But we have a problem here in Ontario, and, and it's a philosophical problem that I've been talking about on the program for the longest time right now. We have an aversion to paying taxes. I mean, I mean nobody likes taxes. I'm a taxpayer, you're a taxpayer. But we have politicians in our faces, well, right now, because there's a provincial election coming up, that are mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to lower your taxes, lower your taxes. And we as voters don't seem to make the connection that lowering taxes means less service. And, and, and that education system is suffering from it. Our healthcare system is suffering from it. And, and we're sitting there, we saved, hey, I saved 40 cents on my paycheck this week. But, you know, your kid may not have a resource teacher at school when they go there next week. But, hey, that's okay. We don't seem to make that connection. No, you're right, and I think we need to get much better at making the connection. But you also indicated, and you're absolutely right, that parents are aware of what's going on on the ground because they, they speak to their kids, right? They, they know what's going on in the classroom, that, you know, educators know um, when they are, are trying to the best of their ability to meet the needs of those children with resources that, that are inadequate or simply not present. Um, and so I think we actually do need to be talking about this in a much more systematic way um, and making those connections. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, parents... 
you're, you know, you, you, you raise the point that people don't like to, you know, <laughs> that, that they, they seem to get all sort of dreamy eyed when someone, you know, dangles a tax cut in front of them. But the fact of the matter is tax cuts mean service cuts as well and, and resource cuts for kids in classrooms. And parents, and parents do understand those connections. Yeah. And, and, and politicians will yeah. tell you otherwise, but don't believe them. I mean, they're trying to get elected. The reality yeah. is, as, as a parent, you know that because you see that happening time and time and you time again. Yeah, it's true, and not, you not only see it happening, you're you're the one going door to door with your kid to try and raise money and to fundraise and launch, you know, fairly um, elaborate campaigns to actually ensure that you know you, you you have reading materials in your schools, fundraising for libraries, you know, you know user fees at at at, uh, at school for high schools. Um, you know, looking at how do you, you know, how do you actually, uh, and, you know, what, where can you raise money to ensure that kids have access to what we would consider when we were younger, just part of an education system. Now you actually have to try and raise money for. So parents are actually, you know, finding ways to get that money. The problem is some parents and some communities and some schools are just in a much better position to raise more money than others, not for lack of trying, just because they just don't have those resources. So what happens when you have inadequate public funding at the outset? is that the private funding that some schools are better able to raise um, just reinforces the socioeconomic inequities that exist between students, between schools, and between neighborhoods. So you're just reinforcing problems when you have not enough public funding and not enough efficient public funding at the outset. That's part of the problem we're seeing, too. There's there's an easy way to to look at this, too. Well, maybe it's not an easy solution, but it's to look outside our borders and say, how is someone else doing it? Are they doing a better job? And, and we know statistically uh, from surveys that have been done for years now that there are education systems in the Far East, certainly in Scandinavian countries and in the mm-hmm. UK, that are much better than ours, much more efficient than ours. And, and to be fair and to be honest about it, they might cost a little bit more, but they, mm-hmm. they get a better result. Is it not worth the investment? That's the question we should be asking. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. And there are tremendous returns on that investment in education for all sorts of reasons, right? I mean, you, you know, you, you provide kids with a head start, then they're more likely to go on post-secondary education, get a job, make more money, you know, pay more in taxes, and then the money goes back into the public pot. And that is all true. That's the economic return. We also need to think about the social returns of access to education, a well-funded, high-quality, publicly accountable ed- education system. And those returns are incredibly profound. You have more um, coherent communities communities, more community engagement, parents are more involved with their kids, they tend to read to their kids more. I mean, the, the, the spin-offs, the social spin-offs and benefits to investing in education are so profound and community changing. You know, we talked about the role that schools play as community hubs in, in neighborhoods, but also, um, you know, in, in, in smaller towns as well, in, in, in entire, you know, rural, rural and, and remote communities as well. And it's true. I mean, these are hubs for child care centers. They provide, you know, adult education. They're a gathering point. You know, they, they are, they're in effect a community center. So we have to acknowledge the important role that schools play, that education plays more broadly in creating a well-educated, empathetic, compassionate, sustainable community, but also the role that the actual physical institutions of schools play in neighborhoods and in small towns. And until we actually 
um, ensure that the funding that is available, um, you know, can allow for that, can allow for that to flourish, can really focus on the resources that kids need to do well that meet their needs as opposed to just sort of allocating a limited pot of money and, and kind of letting the chips fall where they may, not to suggest that it's entirely casually done, but there's no question that the funding that is required for things like um, special education or kids from marginalized communities is simply not there at the outset. And until we actually address the fact that there is a tremendous problem with deferred maintenance in our schools, you know, up to $16 billion needs to be invested um, in order to take care of that, um, we're, we're not actually going to allow schools to achieve their potential. We're not going to allow those students to achieve those pot- their potential. And we're not going to recognize the incredibly important role that educators and education workers play in the classroom, on the front lines, doing their best to service kids, our kids, in our communities. Has anybody made, the, I know you have, but are you hearing anything at all from government uh, about the, the results of this and, and the fact that our current system right now uh, is causing kids and families to be frustrated is, uh, is by the way, in some areas where there are challenges, uh, causing an increase in crime rates, it's causing more uh, access to, uh, to health care facilities. So it's jacking up our costs in other areas because we're not investing in this. Uh, that, that needs to be part of the conversation. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think if you, you, you know, you pay now or you pay later. Sure, yeah. <laughs> right? And you might as well pay now in a way that's actually sustainable and makes sense and, and you know, really supports kids and, 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 uh, and classrooms and educators and communities and families more generally. Um, I think education is always a topic of conversation. You, you've indicated that we're approaching an election. I think we can certainly expect to hear more discussion. We know that the topic, and you mentioned this before, of, of school closures has come up in the past. I would expect that it would come up again. You know, election is a time to really think about the kind of communities we want to build, the kind of society we want to live in, and the kind of world we want to leave to our kids. So I think, you know, the timing is right to have these conversations. And they certainly resonate with parents because they know what it means when their kids come home and talk about their school day, right? They can remember what it was like for them, and they have their own hopes for what their kids can actually achieve. So I think that, you know, we're in a, we're in a good position to have a really fulsome, thoughtful, realistic and in some cases, aspirational conversation, you know, about how we change things to ensure we're getting the education system we need for our kids. Eric, I want you to address the uh, the report that was in the Star last week. We talked about it at great length mm-hmm. on the program here with the Hamilton Board of Education, about violence mm-hmm. in the classroom. And, and, and some of that concern, is, yeah, is bad behavior. Some of it, though, is because of uh, children that have been identified with special needs that really aren't being given the resources. And I, I know that we've heard anecdotally, and I think you've talked about this, uh, you know, lunchroom supervisors that are looking after 75 or 100 kids, mm-hmm. parents being asked to volunteer because there aren't enough staff to do that sort of work. Uh, and, yeah. and under-resourced special needs kids, you know, that are granted, and I use that term advisedly, uh, four or five hours a week with a, an education, with, instead of simply saying, we'll give you what you need to make sure that you can thrive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a different policy. It all comes down to dollars once again. And and that was the undercurrent and the underlying cause, I think, of a lot of the stuff that was in the Star Report. They just don't spend the money on the proper resources. Yeah, and I think when, you know, when, when, when funding is not there at the outset, but then furthermore, when we are not actually funding the needs of the child, right? Um, that's when we're going to fall short. And it is absolutely a question of inadequate resources for educators and education workers to provide 
the skills, the, the you know, the the, uh, the instruction and the care that is required, um, and also to maintain those lines of communication with, with parents and guardians to ensure that all the needs of the child are being met. Um, and, and when I say the needs of the child, you know, you, you talked about lunchroom supervision. That's, that, that's part of the same thing. I mean, it's not a special education issue at all, but, but what we're talking about is ensuring that all kids are having all of their needs met, not just while they're in the classroom, not just their academic needs, but their social needs, um, the ability to go out and, and, and have fun at recess and play and know that you are going to be properly supervised, um, to know that you actually, you know, children don't just sit in their classrooms and learn. They occasionally get up and walk down the hall and use the washroom or go to a water fountain that you hope is working, or they come back and they sit down and they have lunch and they need supervision while they're having lunch as well. So we need to really have a realistic conversation about how we fund not just the classroom, uh, the classroom activities, but the whole school day, right? Kids are in a classroom with other kids. That classroom is in a school. They're there, they're there in that school for the entire day. That school is in a community. The community has a relationship with that school. We need to make sure that those connections are being properly funded too. And that's why we're calling for a rethink of the principles that underpin a funding formula that's going to work for schools, for kids, for educators, for families, and for communities. And it's it sounds so simplistic, really. And and mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting for a second. I'm not naive enough to think it's a simple solution. It's a very complex mm-hmm. problem, and it's going to take an awful lot of work and dedication to do something like this. But we seem to be going at it in a backwards fashion. Uh, we seem to say, "Here's a pot of money. Now let's see where we can allocate this." And straight up, oh, sorry, the money's gone. Uh, whatever's not done, you, too bad, so sad. Yeah. Instead of you simply saying and simply saying, look at, let's assess what we need to do here. Schools, mm-hmm. uh, teachers, training, there's the bill for it. Okay, we got to find that money. They that's not yeah, the attitude. No, you, it's it's let's let's just hear it. It's it's restrictive right off the go. You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be some back and forth communication, right? I mean, we are talking part of our report also talks about the need for public accountability beyond the sort of, you know, dollars and cents accountability that we're talking about where, you know, school boards and account, like basically the accountant side of, of, of accountability, or even that proxy of standardized test accountability. We're talking about regular annual oversight of what, you know, government's releasing in advance, what money they're spending, what are their policies on the books, you know, what do, pe- what do people need to know, and then every five years having a much more thorough review so we actually understand what's going on in our classrooms, how are kids' needs being met. We talk about funding for arts and music and phys ed. Aren't do kids actually have access to those programs? You know, are there, is there a librarian there full-time in the library? You know, things like that that we need to have much better oversight of. So when we're talking about accountability and communication, it really has to be a two-way street, and it doesn't just stop at the board level. This is a provincial responsibility. The money is provincial funding. We all have a stake in this. We need to get much better at actually understanding what's going on in our schools and our classrooms, and that is a two-way street. Erica, how do we ensure that the report and the work that you guys have done uh, and these recommendations just doesn't end up in somebody's blue box at Queen's Park? <laughs> well, the good news is it does resonate with parents. You mentioned that earlier. Parents get it. I really think they do. And certainly educators get it because they're on the front lines and living this. Educators and education workers, they're living this every day. And kids get it, too. So I think, you know, talking to folks like you is incredibly helpful at, at getting the message out there. And uh, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the feedback we're getting about this report. It's clearly struck a nerve because, as I said, I mean, people know that it's not working and they know that it can work. 
And and I think, you know, this a different starting point. I mean, we've called this report course correction, and it is that, but it's a new starting point as well. And I think people understand that the education system is about kids and needs to start with them and ensuring that their needs, all of their needs are being met. And we need the proper funding um, that is actually going to ensure proper funding, proper resources, um, proper expertise that's actually going to get us there. You, you, you may be right. I think we may well be at a tipping point now because even some people within the system are suggesting this has to happen. I, I just, I'll refer to the story, I think it was in Quebec, where a, a group of doctors actually turned down the raise that was being given by the province because they said, no, we don't need this money. Uh, it should be directed more towards patient care. Well, start, I'm hearing this from people in the education system now. Uh, yeah. Maybe not yeah. maybe not union leaders, but people within the frontline people, teachers, education assistants that are saying, no, this is where the money should go. This is what the government yeah. should be doing. So they're hearing those voices. Well, I, but I don't know if they're listening to them. Well, well, I mean, like I said, and like you said, too, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're heading towards a time when all these discussions are on the table and people feel very passionately about their schools and about their communities and about their kids. So, you know, let's let's uh, let's let's see what happens. I'm 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 feeling optimistic, though. I think you're right. I think that people are really making those connections between, um, you know, between our taxes and between our social programs and adequate spending and about the kind of world we want to leave for our kids and ensuring that they're not the ones being shortchanged by, um, you know, an inadequate pot of funding that is based on sort of a one-size-fits-all model. We know kids aren't one-size-fits-all. We know the kids are not standardized. We know that, that schools play a really important role in our communities, and we know that educators and education workers are trying to do their best and just want the resources to ensure that they can do that job and that kids' needs are met. So I'm ready for those conversations, and it certainly sounds like you are, too. Well, yeah, we've been doing this for quite a long time, but it's great to yeah. get ammunition like what you guys have provided. If people want to get a look at the report, where can they find it? They can go to our website, which is www.policyalternatives.ca, and it's called Course Correction, a Blueprint to Fix Ontario's Education Funding Formula. Erica Shaker, thanks so much for the time, Erica. We'll talk again, I know. Thanks, Bill. Take care. You too. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Many eyes uh, were on 60 Minutes last night when the basketball game finally ended, the NCAA game. Of course, because it was the time for the Stormy Daniels interview. She sat down with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes and told her story about her uh, alleged affair with Donald Trump, who was then just uh, Donald Trump. He was not president as of that stage. Uh, joining us to talk about the interview and the implications, uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing today, Laura? Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, you, like others, were uh, in front of the TV last night, I know, watching this. But first of all, before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of what she said last night, uh, I, I know that you're also a student of things like body language and presentation, and, and I want you to assess what was going on at that stage. They were sitting on two simple chairs uh, across from each other. Uh, talk to me about not just what she said, but her presentation. Well, she clearly is comfortable on camera. She came across as being credible. She came across being very self-aware. She didn't seem particularly nervous by the moment. Uh, now, there's a lot of criticism about what was and was not covered in the interview, but from just a body language point of view, she kept open body language. She rarely broke eye contact. There was no point where it looked as though she was trying to create a story if at all. She looked off just to source some memories for some specifics. So from a presentation point of view, I don't think that they could have asked for her to do better than she did. The real concern with the interview was what was left in, what wasn't left in, what wasn't covered, and what new questions does it raise about this whole situation. Does she, did she look rehearsed? 
I think she looked as though she was prepared. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I, I don't mean to cast aspersions. Yeah, that doesn't mean it's a yeah. bad thing. I mean, any anybody who's going to go through a process like this, you would expect the lawyer would sit down and 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 prep them for it. Well, you wouldn't want to be on the you know highest rated sixty minutes show in a decade and not be prepared. So she was clearly prepared. She knew what she should be talking about and what her lawyer had advised her not to speak to. From a just a point of view of a credible delivery, even though people might not like what she does for a living and might not like the holes in the story or some of the changes uh, or things that were left out or the teasing in advance that didn't seem to come to fruition. In spite of all that, you don't find many people who watched it and didn't think that she herself in that moment was telling her truth. And I think that was an important hurdle for their legal team to get over last night. All right, let's talk about the other guy in the room, uh, Anderson Cooper, who conducted the interview, because I've seen the same comments on social media that I'm sure you're referring to. Softballs. Uh, it was easy. I mean, where, where were the tough questions? Where were the follow-ups? And that's what's really interesting about this, is that when you look at 60 Minutes, you know, she was, they, they did a background piece on why they got the interview. They didn't pay for it. She was told by her lawyer, if you're going to break this non-disclosure agreement and possibly incur a million-dollar fine from the Trump team, you might as well, or you'd better go on a credible source. And there's really nothing more credible out there than the 60 minutes, one-on-one intimate interview. It is the, as they even promote on their own listings, it's the granddaddy and the Cadillac of this kind of thing. So she was at the top of the, of the chain in terms of where she could go to be seen as credible. And Anderson Cooper has a lot of credibility as an interviewer. However, uh, there were questions about, well, was he precluded from going into certain lines of questioning? And it doesn't seem as though that would be something he would agree to. So then you say to yourself, well, of the two-hour interview that the lawyer was teasing and had witnessed, uh, how much of it did they cut out because of fear of litigation or, or reaction from Trump and his team? So it almost felt as though some of the more salacious or more headline-grabbing stuff was left on the cutting room floor. And Anderson Cooper even went so far as to tweet out after that some of the, um, you know, the more salacious stuff was not included because 60 Minutes did not want to see to be going into a tawdry sort of angle on the story. So this morning, I think what was really important, Bill, was that her lawyer, who is exceptional as a spokesperson, he really is probably the best lawyer I've seen on TV in 20 years. He did the rounds. He did all the big shows to give some nuance, to help people understand what he was promoting and why it didn't come out, and to make the point that this is just the start. This is just the beginning of the whole story. We And I saw a couple of those. I saw the uh, the one with uh, with Morning Joe, of course, uh, on NBC, or WRS, MSNBC, and, and the one on CBS. And uh, uh, in both situations, Joe Scarborough and, and on CBS, Nora O'Donnell, I went after the lawyer. His name is Michael Avianti. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy, uh, uh, everything bounces off this guy. I mean, he he didn't get rattled at all. But I got to ask you, since I saw those interviews, and I know millions of others did, what is this disc that he keeps waving in, in the face and say this is going to convince everybody? Well, I think what he might have on that disc is just proof of the actual time that they were together, uh, of the actual one-time affair, the one-night stand, whatever you want to call it probably some sort of sexual text message or some sort of other evidence that says, yes, in fact, Donald Trump did have sex with this woman. Um, and the reason why they haven't brought that forward yet is because he it seems to be using it as just more of a sort of Damocles over Trump's head, which is if you come out and say 
uh, you know, anything that we don't want, we can immediately disprove the fact. If you come out with a denial on Twitter about this, we have this that we can immediately. He was almost egg- he was almost egging the president on to do that, wasn't he? He absolutely was. In fact, his strongest takeaway from this morning, he had to have a lot of people say to him, oh, you know, you promised, but you didn't deliver. You hyped it. You overhyped it. Joe Scarborough was extremely critical. And what he said was, well, you know what? They didn't air everything that we gave them. More will be coming out. But this is part of our strategy. But he said, most importantly, if it's not true, then why is Trump silent? Trump's only silent, it seems, on two things, the criticism of Putin and the name Stormy Daniels. He tried to subtweet about it a few minutes ago, saying, you know, there's more fake news out there today than ever, um, but America's doing great. But yeah, but I, I got a question about that. I, I saw Yeah, I saw that tweet. And, and the word voluminous is in that. And uh, he, Trump never uses words with more than two syllables in them, so I think somebody else is tweeting. I mean, right. even David Frum opined on, on Twitter today that they've taken his phone away. Yeah, there was an earlier tweet that had uh, sort of a state of the economy that used language and grammar that Trump typically doesn't bother with. So it does seem as though they're, they are trying to subtweet, they're trying to tweet around it, but possibly there's, there's a, one of his uh, classic fits of rage going on in the White House about this. The idea that it garnered so much attention and that even after there was the criticism that, the, that you know, it just didn't deliver on the goods, There were a couple of things that came out of the interview which are extremely damaging to Trump. One is, of course, that scene that she described and very credibly described, and her lawyer has very credibly described, of a Trump associate, allegedly, coming up and saying, you know, that's a nice little girl you got in there. It'd be too bad if something happened to her mother. I mean, what a horrible, horrible version of an intimidation. And I think even if people are Trump supporters, they would think that that was beyond the pale terms of how to treat a woman and, a, and an infant child. And so, you know, you saw his lawyer come out this morning and say, well, you know, it wasn't us. And the only other people really involved in this thing were the Trump Association and the Trump Associates. So it's likely one of them. And so, of course, now Trump's lawyer, Gary Cohen, has sent a cease and desist letter over to them just today saying, you know, you're causing emotional damage to our to." to the lawyer of Trump by saying this, by alleging this. So that's pretty explosive stuff coming out. The other thing, of course, about this too, Bill, is that at the end of the day, whether you like Stormy Daniels or not, or whether you think that she lied in the past about finding that they never had been together because she felt intimidated, whatever the holes in the story, the fact that Trump's lawyer did a $130,000 payment 11 days before the election uh, that is a big, big problem for Trump. And it also gives the Mueller investigation, as they're saying this morning, they're characterizing it as red meat. This is stuff that he can use. And and Trump's not the first U.S. politician who had a payment that was done to a mistress, allegedly close to a, a campaign. You remember John Edwards? Mm-hmm. And, and it was catastrophic for him. And people are saying there's more evidence in this case than there even was with the Edwards case years ago. So this is, this is a problem, and that might be why we're simply not seeing Trump tweet about it directly. Well, and you talked about the fact of what was left on the cutting floor. And, and what, I mean, they did put one salacious part in there. Apparently, if we're to believe what Stormy Daniels said last night, uh, we're, we know that Donald Trump likes to be spanked, uh, you know, by somebody like Stormy Daniels uh, with a magazine that's got Trump's picture on it, which I found rather odd. Uh, that was a metal picture that I really couldn't get out of my head until I heard that story uh, about the allegation or the threat, really, the physical threat uh, to Stormy Daniels. Uh, that, to me, was the takeaway from the interview, that uh, this is not just some some threat on social media, which is, you know, 
dangerous in and of itself, but a face-to-face threat that, uh, that looks like something out of an old movie. If you don't shut up, something could happen to you. Yeah, and she made it very clear that she could remember the person's face now if they walked in the room, which led people to say, well, why didn't you just identify him? And her lawyer went further this morning to say that Stormy Daniels remembered how good-looking he was and that they're currently working to uh, reveal who it is. And he wouldn't acknowledge whether or not they'd gone to the authorities. And when he was asked, well, why wouldn't you go to the police, given this threat and the fact that she could identify the person who did it, he said, if we make this a criminal thing, it'll go, he called it in the ice box, and the civil litigation will be put on hold for years. And that's not their legal strategy. What I found was quite interesting, uh, Bill, is that Mike Barnacle, who, as you know, is a veteran journalist on MSNBC, yep. he said that he looked in, in uh, Stormy Daniels' lawyer's eyes this morning and that he'd seen a lot of big lawyers and big trials. And if he were Donald Trump, he'd be very afraid because this man, Avenetti, is not letting this go. And that they are they might have made a, mis- a misplay by putting that CD out there. It was maybe too cute by half. But short of that, they seem to have um, put an intimidation factor on Donald Trump that people really can't remember anyone else having done before. Uh, And so it's a fascinating legal drama that is building up. But again, even if people don't like Stormy Daniels or even if people think, hey, good for Trump that he's with these beautiful playmates and porn stars, at the end of the day, it's about that payment. It's the timing of the payment and, of course, possibly this other uh, threat that was made against her, but that was, of course, years prior to the to the uh, presidential election. In the uh, the shows this morning, uh, as I say, I watched the Avenatti interviews on CBS and on MSNBC. Uh, he raises an interesting point. I mean, Cohen obviously is denying that uh, the president had any knowledge of this at all. But in the uh, the non disclosure agreement uh, that was produced, uh, and they have a copy of, why is there a line there for Trump to sign? Well, exactly. And they found out that D.D. was, in fact, Donald Trump. That was uh, what the name they'd come up with. And apparently he didn't sign on that line. Now, that either, to the lawyer's argument, makes the whole thing null and void, so his client can't be penalized anyway for breaking the nondisclosure, or it goes the other direction, which says that, um, you know, uh, in fact, Trump did have knowledge of it. I mean, it's a very sticky situation that Trump is in there in this corner. Uh, either it's untrue or it's true. Either they signed or they didn't. At the end of the day, the $130,000 payment is the problem. Lawyers just don't do that. The idea that he decided to do it years after the alleged affair happened, uh, but coincidental with the presidential election is laughable. The idea that he would do it out of his own pocket because he loved the Trump family so much with no knowledge of his client. I mean, it just the, the, the payment itself is a very big stretch to accept that that was done just out of the blue and without any connection to Trump himself. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of holes on both sides of this story, which is why I don't think any of us have the full picture on it yet. But it doesn't take away the fact that it adds real legal jeopardy for a sitting president who can be um, pulled into a situation like this. There can be civil litigation against the sitting president. We saw Bill Clinton. Uh, we saw even with the special investigation that happened against Bill Clinton, there were different things that came up that were all tied together by Star. Uh, so Mueller can take all of these things. It, you know, if there's illegality happening, he, there's a there's an investigation by a special counsel going on. All of this stuff can play into the mix, which is leading some people to feel as though it may not, in fact, be 
any kind of collusion with Russia that ultimately causes the most legal problems for this president. It might be Stormy Daniels. That may be the biggest challenge in the White House in the in the behind closed door meetings. I'm sure they're having this morning, Laura. Uh, is that with these allegations and with Avenatti's appearances this morning, they've opened up a second front. Uh, they're not just battling Mueller anymore. They're battling Stormy Daniels and her lawyer. Absolutely, and there's also the case of the woman from The Apprentice who's suing for she can't sue for the Karen McDougal. Yeah. Yeah, she can't. Uh, uh, actually, uh, it might be uh, Kim McDougal, I think, is a playmate, but there is yeah. another woman as well from The Apprentice who can't sue because of her alleged sexual. She's claiming sexual assault. McDougal's just saying that she doesn't like being called a liar. But you've got this woman from The Apprentice who said she was sexually assaulted by Trump. She can't sue because of the statute of limitations. But when he came out and said all the women are liars, she's now suing for defamation. And if that goes forward, then there's probably a discovery. So he's got these three lawsuits from these three women, all a little different, coming at him. Plus, he's got, of course, the Mueller investigation with all of its different tentacles. And the fact that Mueller can bring all this together as well with his huge team of investigators. I think one thing that's really notable is that despite the weeks, and we've talked about this, of two-pronged attack trying to discredit the investigation itself and also discredit all of the witnesses and or investigators in the FBI, uh, at the end of all of that effort by the Trump team, we now have exodus of his lawyer earlier this week trying to replace that lawyer and it didn't pan out. So his legal team is in a bit of chaos. And you have 71% of Americans in a poll that came out yesterday saying that absolutely Mueller has to be allowed to finish this investigation. That's 71%. You rarely get numbers like that in America in consensus on any issue. And I think that just says that people... Even if they like Trump, think, okay, if there, if there really is a fire here on, from whatever place, we need to know about it as a country. And, and I think that's significant. The, the campaign to defame or shame or, or at least denigrate the FBI and Mueller doesn't seem to be working. Got about 30 seconds left here, but for those that may question the intent and the resolve of Avenetti and Stormy Daniels in this situation, I got the sense in the interviews I saw this morning, Laura, uh, that this was not about money. As a matter of fact, he even seemed to intimate that this was to take down Trump. That seemed to be the goal. Yeah, Stormy Daniels apparently is very angry, angry that she kept signing these things to make this all go away, and, and then she got an, another approach, and she's been threatened, and she's sick of it, and she's getting all kinds of terrible backlash, so she's in it to win it now, and Avenetti himself, um, obviously, he's leapt to the forefront of all things legal, and he's not going to let this go anytime soon, even if he was planning to in the beginning, which I don't think he was. He looks like a pit bull, and what pit bulls are trained and bred to do is to bleed out the bull from underneath, and it looks like that's what his plan is. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Always a pleasure to get your input into this. Thanks so much. Thanks. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.